And at this point, I'd like to welcome our Shea campus and our Cactus campus to our time in the Word. Amen? Yep. <laughs> I know. It feels good, doesn't it? And uh, for those of you at Shea, you know, they're freaking out right now. I'll be back. Don't worry. And uh, if you're still freaking out, uh, Pastor Neil has some individual samples of Prozac for you. And... Uh, <laughs> Not really, but uh, the day we start handing out drugs at church is not a good day, probably. Hey, great, great worship. Seriously, I, uh, it's been a joy to be up here last night and today at Northridge. You know, it was uh, about a year and a half ago that we started to dream, uh, Mike Burnage and I did, and then the elders together, even before Mike and I were, about, uh, you know, what a, a merger would look like, bringing two congregations together. And, uh, you know, as, a, as we look back on certain events in our lives, Sometimes you find yourself saying this, only God, only God. And uh, I, I never even thought that this could happen. I never thought that it could happen as well as it has. And I know there's always bumps in the road, but to hear you all worship here today and, and to see you and be with you and see even the fellowship uh, that you're having with each other is just, again, it's only God. And uh, it's a real testimony to the world in this community to have two churches come together, now as SBC Northridge, and, uh, and, and to band together as the church. And I'm thrilled to be up here. And we're doing a timely series right now, Cactus and Shea. We're doing a series called Get It. It's on your bulletin there. And we're simply looking at a condensing of our vision, our mission, our values that drive us all together as a church. And we distilled it a couple of years ago to three phrases that we all want to quote, get. And that is we want to get God through his son, Jesus Christ. We want to get real with each other in, in fellowship. And then as we're going to see today, we want to get out there and make an impact for the kingdom. So two weeks ago, we spent a session on get God. Last week, we talked about get real. And today, we're going to finish this up by talking about getting out there. Now, real quick before I pray, there's two aspects to getting out there. Uh, you get out there by serving those in need, just like Jesus did, and then you get out there by also sharing who God is with those around you. So service, and then the old word for this is evangelism. And today we're going to talk more about the outreach component of it because it's something that I find many Christians in today's world are challenged by. But the reason we also have a service Serving fair today here at Northridge and also at Cactus and Shea is that as you go out today, we don't want you to miss that. We want you to be a part of serving as well because that's a huge part of what it means to get out there. But today, we're going to talk about your favorite subject, that of evangelism. And chill out because this is all part of God's plan for you and for me. And when we enter into the fray, He uses us. And as we're going to see in just a few minutes, we're better for it. So bow with me and let's ask God's blessing on this time. Father, uh, indeed, it's neat to be gathered together as the church right now here at Northridge, as well as at Cactus and Venue Chapel and the Shea Worship Center. And so, Lord, as one congregation now, we open up the very words of Jesus and we ask that you might speak to us. We ask that you might change us. 
We ask that you might soften our hearts, focus our minds on the things which you have prepared for us through your word and through your spirit. That's my prayer, God. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And we all say together, amen. So this is a good place to start. I was heading into the car wash on Thursday morning of this week. And just as I was putting my car in neutral and preparing for the big bath, the attendant motioned for me to roll my window down. And I didn't know the guy. It was a younger guy. He was fit and trim, looking the part. And I couldn't imagine what he wanted because the car was already starting to move into the car wash. And so as soon as I got my window down, I'll never forget this. He looked at me and he said, hey, the guy over there, and he pointed to the owner of the car wash, uh, tells me that you love Jesus. And I said, I didn't say anything. And, uh, and, 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 and he looked at me very quickly and he said, I, I do too. Now, folks, this is Thursday morning. Yeah, you can clap at that if you want. Good. This is Thursday morning. It's, a, it's 7.15 in the morning. I have an incredibly busy day before me. That's why I'm washing the car so early. I, I, I have to get ready for my, I have to work on my sermon. And then I had correspondence to respond to. I'm meeting with the chairman of the board that afternoon. I have an elder meeting that night. And I looked at this guy and I said to him, you have no idea. You just made my day. I said to start my day by somebody I don't even know reminding me that there's other Jesus lovers out there and not being shy to tell me that you just made my day. And I fist bumped at him and I rolled the window up very quickly because I was going into the car wash. <laughs> Here's the question that I have for you based on that very, very small, seemingly simple event. As you and I move into the future of our uncertain modern culture, would you like to see more or less of these types of scenarios? Which is it for you? I gotta believe that it's more. I mean, most of us could tell a story like I just did. We've been surprised that way on an airplane or at school or with one of our neighbors or with a service provider. We meet somebody that we don't know when we find out very quickly that there's an affinity with them based on Jesus. For our purposes, there are times where when we're out there in this rough and tumble world of ours and we meet somebody that loves the same Jesus we do, it just makes us feel good. It does something to our heart and mind that tells us to keep going. And I was really right. Man, I thought about that event Thursday all day long. The kid made my day. And the vast majority of us would like to see this more and more in our struggling American culture. And believe it or not, I'm here to tell you today, Cactus and Shay as well, that God has a plan for how this can and should happen more and more in our lives, no matter what kind of culture you live in. Whether you live in America or Somalia or Scotland or China, God has a plan for this entire world on how what I experienced Thursday morning and what you guys do at well at times can happen and it's contained in one chapter of the Bible. So if you did bring a Bible with you today, we're gonna put the scripture here on the screen. But if you brought a Bible, we're gonna park in front of Luke chapter 15 today. It's almost all Jesus, this entire chapter. And it would not be an overstatement to say that this is one of the most challenging, 
Paradigm shifting teachings of Jesus, especially for church people, out of all the things that he ever taught. Luke chapter 15. And let me just tell you very quickly, two minutes, the, uh, the, the backdrop or the context of this story. Because in this chapter, as we go into this chapter, there's two audiences that Jesus has in the same room that you would never expect to be in the same room. And those two audiences are the elite religious leaders of his day. They're called the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Just think pastors and priests and rabbis today. They're all in the room listening to Jesus. And then there's this, these moral renegades of Jesus' day called the tax collectors and the sinners. Uh, so you have these two groups. So it would be like this. I, not to put too fine a point on it, but think of the most godly person in your life. Think of your grandmother or your mother, just that, that very godly, righteous person in your life. If you don't have somebody like that, think of the recently deceased Billy Graham or Mother Teresa. So you have those people listening to Jesus. And then you got Mick Jagger and Howard Stern in the room as well. I, I'm not kidding. I, I mean, that's what was, it felt like for them back then. And, and, and again, the tax collectors and the sinners had no idea why they were there listening to a religious guy like Jesus <laughs> and the Pharisees and the Sadducees were ticked that he would have them in the same audience as them. This is the setting that, that we go into Luke 15 with and God is about ready to drop the bomb on them and telling them his heart and his plan for this world and why these two groups are together and to do so in typical Jesus style he tells them three stories. He doesn't preach from the Old Testament. He doesn't get all preachy in general. He just tells them three stories to communicate God's heart and plan for this world. He tells them a story about a sheep. He tells them the story, a story about a coin. And he tells them a story about a son. A sheep, a coin, and a son. But ironically, actually by design, these stories contain a very similar theme. And here are the, are the three themes that these three stories contain all together. And that is that something of great value is lost. There's a search for what is lost. And there's a great celebration when what is lost is found. Same themes in all three stories. Something's lost, all out search, great celebration. And it covers both the sheep and the coin and the sun. And so for our purposes today, as we try to dial into what it means for you and me to get out there, we're gonna focus on the second of these three stories Jesus tells. It's the shortest, it's only three verses, Luke 15 verses eight through 10. And yet if ever three verses were potent and powerful and life-changing, these three are. So let's read the story first. Just follow along as I read Jesus' second story. He says, or what woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I have found the coin which I had lost. Jesus says, in the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now folks, at first glance, this story seems very similar to the first one and the third one. 
Because the first one's about a lost sheep that the shepherd finds. The second, third one's about a lost son that comes home to the father. So this is now about a coin. But when you look closely at this story, there is a subtle twist that Jesus adds here that if you're not looking closely, you might miss. And this twist has everything to do with you and me today. And the twist involves the main character of Jesus' story as well as the nature of that which is lost. Let me explain. You see, what many Bible experts point out here is that, is that what was lost here is not a sheep like in the first story or a son like in the last story, but what is lost is a coin. And the reason that's important is that coins by their very nature are inanimate objects that have no will or personality. So unlike a sheep that can wander off on its own, or a son who can run away on his own. Coins have no choice. Watch this. They are lost because somebody lost them. Give me a head nod that you're following me so far. And that twist is going to be very, very significant for understanding this story. And the reason that we are so sure that that's what Jesus is getting at here is that when you look at verse nine and I put it in yellow for you here, the woman says, rejoice with me for I found the coin which I had lost. So the woman says, this coin didn't lose itself. Coins, by the way, can't do that. This coin was lost because the woman lost the coin. That's very, very important. And so you have a coin that can't lose itself. You have a woman that confesses to being the one who lost it. And so here's why this is all extremely important. Let's get right down to it right now. And that is that what many commentators point out is that what that means then is that the character in this story, the main character, the woman, can't be God because then it would make God culpable for losing his creation. Does that make sense? So in the third story, when the son runs away, we know that the father is not responsible for that. The father represents God and humanity runs away from God. We get that. In the first story, you have the sheep and the sheep wanders off by itself. It's not the shepherd's fault, but the shepherd runs to the hills to get that one sheep. That shepherd represents God. But in this story, you have a woman who lost the coin herself and admits it. And again, what commentators point out is that that can't then be God because God would never lose his creation. We are lost because we wandered. And so the question becomes, who does this woman then represent in Jesus's story? And it's here that the twist comes in. Because what most Bible experts suggest is that this woman most likely represents the church. You and me who are called not just to join God's heart for the lost, but to actually become a part of the search and rescue process. If you don't believe me, I want you to listen to Alfred Plummer. He was a well-respected Bible scholar in the last century, a professor at Trinity College in Oxford. And just so you know, this isn't only my interpretation. Uh, look at what Plummer says. It's older language, but you'll catch on. He says, the main points of difference between this and the preceding parable are the changes from a man to a woman and from a sheep which could stray of its own accord and feel the evil consequences to a coin which could do neither. From this it follows that the woman can blame herself 
for the loss of the coin, which the man does not do with regard to the sheep. Here it is. Hence, we may infer that the woman represents the church rather than God, if she represents anything at all. And so do you see, if we're reading this right, and I think we are, this now brings you and me, the church, into the equation, into God's plan for reaching those who are lost. And I would submit to you that this twist changes everything. This twist means that you and I are not spectators as so many Christians are as to what God might want to do in this world, just kind of waiting for him to show up and do something. No, we truly do become the body of Jesus Christ, as Jesus says, his hands, his feet, even at times as we're going to see today, his mouthpiece. And so if you're getting this at all, if you're tracking with this at all, that we could actually be a part of God's plan for reaching those around us who don't know him, these lost coins, I want you to notice with me three implications of this twist. And these implications are found right in the words of Jesus, so we're gonna stay close to his story here. And these implications now change the focus of this search and rescue process from simply God to God now including us. So each one of these implications will begin with the little word we. And here's the first one. And that is that we, you and me, the church, have lost ones who need to be found. (laughs) In other words, we have coins in our lives and we have lost at least one of those coins. Uh, Look at how Jesus would say this in his story. Or what woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one coin? Now, just real quickly from a historical contextual perspective, uh, for this woman in that culture to have 10 silver coins was a tremendous amount of money back then and almost surely her entire wealth. We don't know where the husband is here. He's most likely deceased or Jesus would mention him. And so this could have been an inheritance. It could have been an dowry. It could have been their their life savings. We don't know. All we know is this woman had 10 silver coins and that's her life right there. And so when Jesus says that she loses one of them, you need to know that's a big deal. That's a 10th of her wealth and it rocked her entire world. So before we move on, let's just pause there because the point is really clear. Say you have 10 close friends and or family members. That would be a pretty good thing, right? 10 people that would care if you died. (laughs) 10 people that that, that love you and, and, and care for you and you them. And though some, if not many of them, might share your Christian worldview, think about it. If even just one in your life is lost, and doesn't know God through Jesus Christ, I think you'd agree that's a big deal. And that that would be worthy of your attention in your life. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. That just like a woman who has 10 silver coins, that's her entire wealth, and one of them is lost, she is gonna go crazy on searching for it. His point is this, you got people in your life that Jesus knows you love and they love you. And not all of them have been found yet by God. And instead of just waiting for God to do something, which by the way, he is doing something, but part of his something is he wants you to get off your duff and to start to, 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 to now be a part of the search and rescue process as he empowers you just like you're looking for that lost coin. One woman 
equals the church here. One woman is about to start an intense search and God calls you and me to do that as well. And once we get this, the only question we have to ask and answer and with this will be done is how do we do this, right? I mean, how would Jesus want us to join God's rescue, search and rescue process as one who shares in the burden of these lost ones? And thankfully, Jesus goes on to give us an overriding principle here as well as some specifics that help us learn what this means for you and me today. So here's the principle, it's point two on your outline. And that is that we, I told you we're gonna begin every one of these with we, the church, we must join God's search for the lost. Now, I know this sounds incredibly simple. Some of you are going, really, really, that's your second point here? Well, it, it is, because it's exactly what Jesus goes on to say here, but with some texture and richness that are going to blow you away. Look again at verse eight. Jesus says, or what woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one coin, we've seen that, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. Let me repeat that. It's so easy to do a drive-by of this. Uh, She lights a lamp and she sweeps the house and she searches carefully until she finds the coin. Could there be something in there for you and I? I've spent years in front of Luke 15, 30 years now, as a minister, a pastor, and even more so before I became a minister, just meditating and researching and hearing sermons on on what Jesus could be getting at here. And this is one of my favorite parts of the story because I'll just cut right through it all uh, right now. What's happening here is that this woman, watch this, is using multiple tools mounting a progressively intensifying search, isn't she? Multiple tools mounting a progressively intensifying search. That's what this woman is doing to find her coin. We'll get to you and I in a minute, but let's just cement what she's doing. The first tool she has in her arsenal, I don't want to break this because this belongs to my assistant, is a oil lamp. They had oil lamps back then. This is not one from back then, obviously, because it's made of metal and stuff like that. But they'd have an oil lamp very similar to this back in Jesus's day because that's how they lit the homes in Palestine 2,000 years ago. And homes back then, this will be a good tidbit for you, uh, were very dark places that didn't have a lot of windows. Do you know why? (laughs) You're gonna like this. Because it was hot in the desert, just like it is here. And they didn't have air conditioning back then. You all understand that, right? And so they built houses that, that didn't have any windows in them so it would try to protect it from that brutal sun. But they would be dark. And so when this woman lost the coin, she lit her lamp, and you can just picture it, can't you? In this dark house, man, she just starts going all over looking for this coin that she had lost. And she spends a lot of time with this first tool mounting a progressively intensifying search, and she doesn't find her coin, so she grabs her broom. This would be very similar to a broom in the first century. Just simple straw, a little wood there. And she starts to take this broom and she goes atop the cabinets and she gets under the bed and she starts sweeping in corners, just going anywhere she can to try to hear clink, clink as she searches for this coin. And that doesn't work. So Jesus says she then has a third tool in her tool bag and it's easy to miss. She searches carefully. 
Now, now this word or phrase, search carefully in the Greek, literally means to diligently seek something. It carries with it the idea, watch this, that this woman turns up the heat on her already hot search. You ever done that in your life? Like where you're looking for something and you try all the things in your tool bag and you can't find it and you say, you know what? When the going get tough, the tough get going. I'm not gonna quit. Where is that coin? And so she starts running all over the house. That's the picture Jesus wants you to have. Just looking for that coin as she seeks diligently for it. This is the picture Jesus is painting here. And what I would submit to you is it contained in this progressively intensifying search where we see this woman using multiple tools is an implicit call for you and me today, each of us individually, and then together as a church, to engage in a similar multi-tiered search that progressively journeys with the lost ones in our lives. Does that make sense? That just like this woman shows us with the coin, could it be that Jesus wants us to link this to how we approach the people, the lost loved ones in our lives today? That we begin an intentional, relational journey with our lost friends and family, utilizing all the tools at our disposal, and we journey with them until they are found by God. Not till they find God, because it's up to God. But as you're seeing today, he wants to empower you and I. We're part of that search and rescue process. And you're saying, well, what might these tools be? Let me share with you a few of them. Again, multiple tools progressively intensifying over time. Here's the first tool you and I have. We can take the relationships that we have right now with loved ones who are lost and simply add one element in our mental arsenal to them, redemptive. In other words, stop seeing them as lost causes, amen? Stop saying, well, they've been that way for so long. And I don't think, I hear this all the time from people, you know, I don't think they'll ever change. And we've tried so many things. I, I, again, I know every excuse under the sun. I've used them myself. As you'll hear in a minute, I have people in my life that have been unsaved and lost. I'm 56, for about 56 years as I've been journeying with them. And yet I've never taken that word redemptive out of the equation. You know why? You're gonna love this. Because everybody matters to God. Everybody has redemptive potential. If I didn't believe that, I'd quit tomorrow. If I didn't believe that Howard Stern could be saved, I'd quit tomorrow. I've prayed for Keith Richards and Mick Jagger, and I've prayed for the Rolling Stones. I have prayed for ACDC. I'm an old rocker, can you tell? I, I have prayed for those people of the years because I believe that God could save them. I believe he made them and loves them, and he calls them and woos them to himself. And I believe that every human being on planet Earth has redemptive potential. Do you? Do you see those around you that way? That's the very first step. It's, it's, it's a tool you have in your tool bag. Add some redemptive aspects, just in how you see them, to these precious relationships. And then as you're chewing on that, uh, do this. I, 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 I dare you at some point to, in a non-threatening way, share a verbal witness with them. Now, some of you are freaking out right now. Some of you want to tune me out right now because you're saying, you mean I gotta tell them about Jesus? Yeah, but, but let's take the edge off that because again, too many Christians are defensive about this. 
When we say share a verbal witness, all I mean is that if you have lost loved ones in your life, if you have even friends that you want to see in heaven with you, pray about a natural opportunity. Now watch this, for you to share your story as it has intersected with his story. That's all a verbal witness is. And the beautiful thing is you and I live in a day and age today where everybody's into your story. Everybody's into their own experience and what they've experienced in this world and da, da, da. And so all we're saying when I say share a verbal witness is share your experience with this Jesus that you purport to love. <laughs> and then as you do so, make sure it intersects with his story. And you go, what do you mean by that? Well, his story is simply the gospel. And I've told you guys this before. It's not complicated. We make it complicated. We don't need to. The gospel is summed up in four words. You ready for this? God, sin, Christ, you. That's the gospel. God loves you. Sin separates. Jesus came to forgive you of your sin. You need to accept him. <laughs> we teach our first graders this in Sunday school. They accept Jesus in Awana. If it was that complicated, then they wouldn't be able to get it, but they do. And like little children, they embrace Jesus. Why do you and I muck up the waters so much? All I'm saying is share your story, your experience with this Jesus. And as you tell your story, bring God, sin, Christ in you. However you do it, weave that into it. And as you do that, God's gonna empower that. And again, I've been doing this so long. People say at this point, well, what if I mess it up? What if I don't use the right words? What if they don't like me? What if they reject me? Okay, let me cut through that right now and give you an illustration that will show you how non-threatening this can be if it's really in here for you and the loved ones around you. How many of you have ever been engaged to be married? Raise your hand, Shea, Cactus, all of you, come on, raise your hand. Even those of you at home, raise your hand if you've been engaged to be married. Many of you have. And for the rest of you, maybe someday you, you hope and long to be engaged to be married. For those of you who've been engaged to be married, I promise you, you had a similar experience to what I'm about to share. And that is that, that, that when you put that ring on her finger or when as a gal that ring went on your finger, uh, either that day or the next day, you met somebody who, who's a friend and they didn't know that you got engaged and women, you're were, you were going like this, right? And, and men, you're kind of like, eh, well, I got something to share with you, you know? And, and, and you couldn't wait to share it with them, how excited you are to be engaged and the wedding that's coming up. And let me ask you, when you shared that with them, now go with me on this, <laughs> did you worry about getting the words right? Did you worry that they might reject you? Did you hope, oh my gosh, I don't know if I can do that because I might say the wrong thing. And You didn't think of any of that at all. No, all you knew is that now the love of your life had cemented his or her commitment to you and you couldn't wait to tell those around you. And some of you knew that some people might even judge you for it if it's a family member or whatever. You did not care. You know why? Because love covers over a multitude of sins and you knew that love is more powerful than anything and you didn't care. And here's my question then for you. If it can work that powerfully on a human level with engagement, then what in the world is holding you back with Jesus? 
If you have a love relationship with him, and I hope you do. I loved how that guy said it to me at the car wash on Thursday. He didn't say, hey, I hear you're an evangelical Christian. That would like freak me out, right? No, he didn't say that. He just said, I, I hear you love Jesus. I, I almost got weepy in the moment the way he said that because that's exactly the way I want to be described. How about you? I hear that you love Jesus. You see, that's all you're sharing when you share a verbal witness. You're sharing about a love affair that you have with a person. It just happens to be the God of the universe who also wants to include them in this love affair. And you have no reason to apologize and don't worry about what you're gonna say. A true story, years ago when I was learning how to share my faith, and we'll talk about how we're gonna help you with this in just a second. Years ago when I was learning this, I was on a beach in Daytona Beach. I was involved with this group called Campus Crusade and we went to the beaches and we'd share people that, forget about a relationship, we would just go crazy, meet anybody and everybody. We'd pull out these four spiritual laws and we'd share. I was a young theologian in training, you know, and I remember that one day this girl was, was sharing Jesus with this poor guy on the beach and, uh, and she was just doing it all wrong. I mean, she wasn't using the right words. You know, she's just kind of reading the booklet and she messed up even the reading of it. And I'm sitting there thinking, this, this is not right. It's not right, you know, all these things. But she was doing half right and all this. And it got to the end of it and I'm just like cringing and all that. And, and, and all of a sudden she says, do you want to accept Jesus? And the guy said, yes. And I wanted to look at him and say, no, 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 no. She didn't do it right. And at that moment, God, and you gotta love God. God just said, Jamie, just take a few steps back, would you? Because I I got something going here that you're obviously not a part of. And, uh, and, And I watched this dear woman pray with this dear guy to receive Jesus. That taught me that God's not interested in you getting it completely right. He's interested and you sharing your story as it intersects with his story. And here's the deal, gang. You can do that. Cactus, Shay, you can do that. You got it in you. I did that the day after I accepted Jesus. I had dinner with one of my best buddies from high school and went to Denny's, where all spiritual things happen in Cleveland. And, uh, and, and, I, and, I, and I sat down and I shared with him about this Jesus that I met 24 hours ago. And guess what? I didn't know a hoot about the Bible. Nobody ever shared me how to share my faith. It was that engagement thing. I was just excited. And I shared my very first verbal witness within 24 hours of accepting Jesus. If that can happen, you can do that too. So we are gonna offer a video curriculum by this December. We decided as a leadership team just a few weeks ago that we do want to turn the heat up on helping you share a verbal witness with those around you. So if you're still like, wow, what do I really do? But we're gonna offer a video curriculum to all of our small groups and to you know any individuals that wanna take it, we'll have it on our website. Uh, kind of a four session thing that talks about his story, your story. So again, we're gonna help you do this as we move forward, but it's not as complicated as we make it. So you add the word redemptive to your relationships, you share a verbal witness. Now, here's what happens. Many times when you share a verbal witness, and I wish this would happen, but it doesn't. Many times people don't say, oh my gosh, I never thought of it like that. I didn't know that. Where do I sign up? Can I pray with you to receive Jesus? That does not usually happen the very first time somebody shares a verbal witness. In other words, people wanna think about it. This is new, it's a big decision, yada, yada, yada. So what do you do during that time? Here's what you do. It's the third thing in your arsenal. You invite them to church. You invite them to church. This is really important, gang. This is really important. I got saved, what, 1981, so it was now 38 years ago I got saved. In 1982, I went off to college. 
and I was so on fire for Jesus, and yet most of my friends, talk about, I, I had like 100 lost coins in my life. Most of my friends didn't know anything about Jesus. We were all ex-rockers and, and, and decadent and all that stuff. And uh, I went to college, and I joined a fraternity, and, uh, and this fraternity, none of them knew Jesus. And, and then, because I was on fire for Jesus, I would go to church on Sunday. Now, I wanna be sensitive how I described it, because I loved my little church in Michigan. I loved my little church back home in Cleveland. But let's just say it mildly that the church that I experienced back then culturally was extremely different than the world that I lived in. Do some of you remember those days? In other words, I would walk into church and we'd be singing songs that were like, not like ACDC songs. They were not like Rush. They weren't like that. We would sing songs to an instrument that I had not heard of before called an organ, in which I found out was invented during the Enlightenment hundreds of years ago, and that you'd never hear on the radio, but churches were still using it. And we were singing songs that I'd never heard of because they were written again hundreds of years ago when they invented the organ. And these were the main songs Back in the 80s, we were singing. And guess what? I learned to sing them. And I loved them. And I now, I know all the hymns and they are so meaningful to me, but I had to retrain my soul (laughs) how to sing those things. And even to the instruments we sang them to. And then the pastor would get up to speak. And again, I, I, I want to be very gentle with my fellow pastors. But, you know, in, in, in many churches in America, pastors are so overburdened. They're so overrun. They have so many responsibilities. They don't have the luxury to spend a tremendous amount of time on sermon prep. And many of them aren't natural orators. And so, you know, my pastor would get up and, oh, my, I mean, I would just, maybe, I mean, I'd be going like this just to stay awake, you know, and, and he meant well, but I mean, it was hard to dial in for 30 or 40 minutes. And, and then the people, I mean, they were wonderful people. I, I grew to love them so much, but they were weird. Have you ever noticed that about Christians? I mean, they were into things like homeschooling and, and, and Bill Gothard and, and all these things, and I, I hadn't heard of any of that. And so just suffice it to say, fraternity on college campus, you know, all my old high school friends, and here's Jamie at a Wednesday night prayer meeting, you know, in this church. And, and those worlds could not have been more different. And so when somebody said to me, invite one of your friends to church, (laughs) I would have said, it'll ruin it for their walk with Jesus. I mean, it will just, it will turn them off. And and sure enough, I did invite some people and they were so nice to me and say, well, hey, thanks, dude. I'm not going back to that place, you know? And so it was hard. And here's my point in telling you all this. We have worked really hard over the last 38 years to help church become a place in which the cultural differences might not be as stark. We haven't watered down the truth an ounce. That's why we call this Northridge Bible Church, Scottsdale Bible Church, because we preach the Bible, we preach God's truth, we're all about Jesus here. But the music that some of you still don't like, you're gonna hate heaven, by the way, some of you still don't like, <laughs> has, has been updated and, pro- by the way, as I saw some of you were worshiping, I love you guys to death, and I get it, I'm like you, I'm like you, but some of you are just worshiping like this the whole time, you know, and I'm just thinking to myself, you know what, you're gonna be stunned when you get to heaven. 
because no one's going to be worshiping like this in heaven. But that's for another sermon. And, and I'm, I'm trusting your heart is into it. So I, uh, I, I, the music here is much more updated and, and, and more to the things you hear on the radio. We work hard on, on making sure the sermons are exciting. Henrietta Mears was a forerunner of the Sunday school movement years ago. She once said it's a sin to bore kids with the gospel. And guess what? I believe that when I preach. It's a sin to bore you with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We work hard not to do that. Kevin Rustin, myself, all the other teachers here. And guess what? And I'll give you guys a compliment. You're more normal than the church people I knew 38 years ago. And I mean that sincerely. I mean, you come in, you look like normal people. I get that. And my point is this. It's not nearly as threatening for you to invite one of your lost ones to church. I was with a guy this week who, who said to me, I mean, he runs a very successful business. He's done really well for himself. He cares about lost people. And he said, man, I invite people to our church all the time. I got no problem doing that. You know why? Because God empowers that. It, 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 there's not a, this cringe factor that used to be there. It's okay. Some of you need to take those risks because you're developing redemptive relationships. You're sharing your story with them. Use your church. And then again, maybe they're still not ready to accept Christ, so you got a fifth or fourth thing in your arsenal. Journey with them some more. Just simply put, stay in the ring. And some of you go, yeah, but I've been doing that. What do I do now? Last thought. Here it is. Journey. Give me another clicker. Journey until you or they say the word with me die. (laughs) I'm not trying to be morbid. I'm just saying journey until death with that lost coin in your life. A true story, a year ago, I was in a Cleveland doing a wedding. Uh, I have so many roots there, and it was last August, and, uh, and I did this wedding at a beautiful little country club setting there, and I stayed for the reception because of family I know so well. In fact, I helped lead both the parents to Jesus years ago, and now their daughter's getting married. And, uh, and, and so I'm sitting at the reception, and I got seated next to my best friend from third grade. He's one of the guys that shortly after I accepted Jesus on March 11th, 1981, man, I, within like a week, he wasn't the next night, but the week, man, I was telling him about Jesus. And he was wide open and receptive, and he's just always had a, a very, you know, kind of a, a difficult spiritual walk, I would say. You know, he's had some rough things happen in his life, and here I am seated next to him. And man, it was not hard at all to bring up spirituality. I mean, it was a wedding, for crying out loud. So, you know, I mean, it's kind of a spiritual event, but man, we just got to talking right away about Jesus again. And it was just like picked up where he left off. And I, I gave him a copy of my book because I carry it everywhere with me. And I, I gave him a copy of my book. And, uh, and I said, here's a book on joy and it all tied to Jesus and, and all of that. And, uh, and, and man, we've just started texting since then. And it reminded me that here we are both 55 years old, best friends since third grade, and I'm still journeying with him. And I will until one of two things happens, either until he accepts Jesus and gets on fire about the Lord or until one of us dies because that's what you do. And I'm never giving up. And that's a lesson for all of us. This woman did not give up until she found that coin. You don't need to either. A really quick illustration here. Uh, let me show you two pictures here. This is a picture of a safe harbor. This is how many, many Christians tend to live. They just love the safe harbor of their church, of their homeschool movement, of their Christian college, of their Bible study, of their Christian television, whatever it is. We have Christian everything today. And it's possible to park your boat in the harbor and never have to go into open, rough waters. 
God did not intend it that way, but that's what we've made today. This is what rough waters looks like. Rough waters are where the waves are crashing there, the birds are coming down. But if you notice, rough waters are where the other boats are as well. And rough waters are where sometimes people go overboard and are about ready to drown. And God wants us out in those rough waters, the open waters, because if we're not out there, who's gonna save them from drowning? So my question to you is, is do you wanna be a safe harbor Christian or an open water Christian? Because the future of our church depends on open water Christians who just have the guts to add that word redemption to their relationships, to share a verbal witness, to invite the church, to journey with others. It's not a threatening thing to do. You're loving them in the name of Jesus. And here's my last and final thought, because we've got to wrap this up in a minute, that when you do this, here's what you're going to be shocked by, and that is that we get joy as the reward. Look at how Jesus would say it. He says, and when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I found the coin which I lost. He says, in the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God when one sinner, over one sinner who repents. Wow. You know what I love about this verse? <laughs> it doesn't say there's joy in the presence of the angels of God when you show up at church. It doesn't say there's joy in the presence of the angels of God when, you know, you go to Bible study or you write that check or even when you serve at a soup kitchen. Those are all good things to do. Those are all things God wants us to do. He reserves his greatest joy that he will also share with you when a tax collector or a sinner finally comes home. I warned you, Luke 15 is the most powerful, powerful chapter, really, in almost all the Bible, because it shares with us God's heart. It shares with us the seed of his joy. And that joy can be yours if you will just trust him enough to move into some open waters and allow him to use you. Let's get out there. Let's care about those who are lost. He can use you, I promise. Father, thank you for these attentive ears here and at other two campuses. Thank you, God, for uh, your word and these profound words of Jesus. And I pray, God, that as each one of us give thought to our own lives, as we talk about these things with those around us, God, that you would take the edge off of all of our fears and the things that hold us back. Just help us to row our boat out into those open waters. And Lord, protect us, keep us safe, Keep us close to you and then use us, God, because we care about those around us. Use us to draw them closer to yourself and eventually to being found by you. That's my prayer in Jesus' name, amen.